In one form or another, words are everywhere. Well, they're not just everywhere, they're everything. Really, they define our lives, from work to play to how we process and understand the world. I used to teach George Orwell's 1936 essay on politics in the English language, which I quote from in the book, and in which he says, essentially, that language slippage leads to sloppy thought, and that if we don't care about the precision of the words we use, and I I must say this is not an argument for standard English as such. I think there's a richness in dialects and street language and all that, but still, any authentic language group has a capacity for precision and for calling our attention to things that matter um, and enabling us to see them. And we lose some of that if we lose language, use language imprecisely or use it in such new contexts that older meanings get lost. I'm Aaron, and thanks for listening to my podcast, a show about writers, writings, and a little bit of everything else. Words are like the air we breathe. And sort of like the air we breathe, a lot of our word air is just terrible. Now, there's not a whole lot you or I can do to reverse the abuses of, say, cable news or social media or Instagram captions. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. In fact, we should. Why and how is exactly what I'm learning from Marilyn McIntyre. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Aaron. It's good to be here. I guess getting into it, I mean, I think there's an obvious answer since you're an English professor, but beyond that, what, what was kind of your uh, entry point that we're having a, a words crisis in our culture, society, subcultures, whatever it would be? When I was speaking with you before, I talked about slogans like fair and balanced, which is a slogan that Fox News has used for a long time. And now if you pair those two words, it's difficult not to hear them as a slogan, or at least to hear that slogan kind of echoing in the background. It's become part of the resonance. Or I think about just the ways in which hyperbole has been normalized in commercial language. I mean, having worked at various institutions of higher education, I think about how they market the school to prospective students by talking about excellence, which is mm-hmm. fine. But if you don't define excellence, then what does it mean? So yeah. that's yeah. a form of imprecision. I've done a lot of work in higher ed, so a few different institutions, and then on like a kind of consulting side. It's comical how probably 80% of the, that's a totally out of the blue statistic but you know some crazy high percentage of schools use world-class faculty somewhere on their website right. like somehow yes. everybody has a world-class faculty <laughs> which even for the people for the schools for which that may be true i don't know that there's like a world ranking of faculty somewhere like what, what like what would that even mean i guess if it were verifiable in any in any sense well and even the idea of marketing itself and all of the language that comes with it has now moved into the academy and the church in ways that seem to me to be inappropriate. So that uh, the distinction between, say, marketing and evangelism, or what we market and what we invite people to and offer them as educators, 
gets confused and students are confused about sometimes about whether they are sort of apprentices or customers. Somehow labels have become increasingly important to entice people. And there's a certain level of confusion and even deception that is involved in a great deal of marketing. And I think it's troubling that we don't recognize it as deception when it is that. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because my, the question that comes to mind, I think when I hear you talk about deception uh, in, in this way, do the players who are participating in this kind of language or promoting it, I think they would push back on the idea that they're deceiving someone certainly actively um, but then, as you said, maybe it's not even cognitive. Is that an evolution thing? Do we get there just as we've uh, dumbed down our discourse over time? And for the people who are doing it actively and in some ways happily, but ignorantly of, of the, some of the damage of, uh, say, rank hyperbole, how did we get there? I think that there are lots of answers to that, depending on how far back you go. And it's not as though I think there was some golden age in which language was used to perfection, but sure, I think yeah. there is no perfection in language. It's always evolving. And colloquial language is often colorful and lively and very important. So that evolution, I think, is important to distinguish from a kind of attrition that we're looking at now. And authentic language evolution, I believe, comes through real exchange and conversation and on the streets and among communities of people who are seeking to understand each other and maybe maybe understanding each other in very local terms. But I think that how we've gotten to the place we are now is a function partly of what I've heard called late stage predatory capitalism, which is to say, as we have commodified everything in sight, failing to preserve what Lewis Hyde called uh, some portion of gift culture, which intact cultures, Lewis Hyde is an anthropologist, and he says intact cultures generally preserve a sacred space for things that cannot be bought and sold. And yet we have managed to commercialize and commodify the air, the land, the water, um, airwaves, time, you know, so much of our medium of exchange in ordinary life is now something that can be bought and sold. And so I think that as words have become commodified and slogans become effectively the property of a corporation uh, and the particular language on a document can be protected you know, we get into a lot of legal entanglements about who owns the language. That's one thing. And another is that because of mass media, with the advent of mass media, um, I think that we have many of us as listeners or readers or sort of the, the target market, which is a very apt metaphor, have become targets for a kind of language that is intended to induce us to generate needs or wants or dissatisfactions that can be satisfied by their products. How does this discussion relate to people who would consider themselves non-words people, but yet find themselves daily, often minute by minute, 
using words, um, written and otherwise. I know that in the book, I use the analogy between language and soil, the kind of ecological analogy that in the same way that we aren't doing a very good job of caring for ecosystems, we also aren't doing a very good job of really caring for that in some ways, delicate web of words that enables us to see and make distinctions. There are linguists that say, if you don't have a word for a thing, you don't have the experience. And I don't know if I would go quite that far, but I, I do think that as we lose words or fail to use them, we lose that broad middle ground, that gray area that I think I linked to Jane Austen, where instead of saying, this is terrific, or this is so depressing that you might be able to say, well, this is perplexing or confusing, or this makes me anxious, or this is uh, curious. You know, all those words that might describe a range of feeling that don't drive us to that kind of polarization that has become a hallmark of a very bifurcated culture. One of the things that I have loved about parenthood has been this a rediscovery of children's literature, and particularly Sandra Boynton. Since I was a child and before I had children, I read uh, Shel Silverstein's um, The Giving Tree, not like all the time, but you know, once a year or so, I'd come across it on the shelf and and read it. But I think I had fallen into a rut before our, my first our first daughter came along. I mean, working in words, you know, requires a lot of attention to writing, typing. Um, grammar rules, etc. And I think I'd forgotten a little bit how enjoyable words can be. It can. And I think that's a very important part of a child's formation that you play with words, just like dance and song are a way of taking delight in the body and the voice. And it's so empowering to say, wow, look at all of this that's at my disposal. And I get to move these words around and make them rhyme and uh, listen to their sounds that's just so rich. And when children don't get read to, there are all kinds of studies that suggest that not only do they do poorly in school, but they tend to get into more trouble socially. It's just very disempowering not to be able to speak. And when you really can't speak what you need to say, it moves you toward a kind of violent outbreak because you're living with a level of frustration that can't find its avenue in words. I marked this up, this one passage in the second chapter of your Caring for Words book. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's really important. This is in your second stewardship strategy, which I think is, yes, it's telling the truth. This is about truth. You say, "But, but there is no question that precision is difficult to achieve. Imprecision is easier. Imprecision is available in a wide variety of attractive and user friendly forms, cliches, abstractions, generalizations, jargon, passive constructions, hyperbole, sentimentality, and reassuring absolutes. Imprecision minimizes discomfort and creates big, soft, hospitable, a big, soft, hospitable place for all opinions, even completely vacuous, even the completely vacuous can find a welcome there. So the practice of precision not only requires attentiveness and effort, it may also require the courage to afflict the comfortable and consequently tolerate their resentment. Um, And I think there's a bit of, I don't think it's irony, um, but maybe an unexpected twist on the nature of caring for words there 
in that what you're calling for, what those who care for words are calling for, is not some sort of 18th century British politeness. Uh, in fact, the result can actually be more confrontational. Oh, yeah. And I think that good conversationalists know how to be deft and agile and kind and imaginative in calling their partners in conversation to account, giving, you know, it's like a dance. It's to say, mm-hmm. don't step on my toes. All right. We, let's learn the, let's learn the steps. But one of the steps is to say, now, wait, what exactly do you mean there? Or could we back up and talk about whether you mean this or you mean this, let's make some distinctions. Or do you have an example of that? Or might the opposite also be true. Is there a paradox here? But just pausing and examining what has just been said instead of driving on to make your own argument, which is, I think, a kind of default for more um, public debate, so-called. I don't think public debate actually rises to the level of good debate. But I also think that Conversation can be exploratory, it can be inviting, it can be playful, it can be amusing, it can, you know, be all kinds of things other than just making a point and proving a point. I have more times than I can count asked, (laughs) often no one but myself, but I've often asked, uh, why could we not have, say, a presidential debate where uh, the two candidates or three or whomever weren't allowed to disclose their party? Or what if we didn't have a party system? Well, I think what people, I mean, personally, I think what people would be shocked at is, one, the level of agreement, and two, the level of disagreement with the people who they would otherwise assume they'd agree. Well, I think this is probably for a different conversation because it opens a wide door, but I just want to say when you said two parties or three, I think there have been a lot of historical reasons why American culture, in North American culture in particular, has become polarized and bifurcated into Republican, Democrat, North, South, East Coast, West Coast. If we had even a third party, not to mention, you know, five or six, like some countries, we would have a more complex middle ground. And I don't think that we would rush so quickly to extremes. We have been, have a long legacy of extremists. And, you know, we began American history as we know it, as those of us who are of European extraction know it, as a bunch of kind of renegades and revolutionaries and people who went off the margin. So I think there's a long history to this kind of polarization. But my feeling is that good conversation helps to reclaim the middle ground, to say it's a little more complicated than that. Marilyn McIntyre is a teacher and writer. She's taught at several colleges around the country in the field of medical humanities, and she's the author of 14 books, all of which you should read. But first, read Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, and then the other ones. You can learn more about Marilyn at marilynmcintyre.com. Are you a systematic reader? Are you looking to grow your knowledge in certain disciplines and attack that? Or are you simply, uh, what C.S. Lewis, uh, reading for pleasure at your own whim? What does it look like? Well, I think one of the great graces and gifts in my life is that work and play really overlap so much that I don't 
think of them in separate categories. So a great deal of what I read, I read because I'm going to teach a course in it and I get to invent my own courses at this point because I've stopped full-time undergraduate teaching and I'm teaching what I want and teaching part-time and writing more. And so I get to kind of read around. When you say systematic, I have to laugh because I'm my husband were here, he would laugh too. I'm not systematic about very much of anything, but <laughs> I sort of trust the flow of my own energies and think if I have a curiosity about something and I am drawn to that when I read an article or book review or something and I want to follow it up, I go there. And it's amazing how much um, if you read in different fields, things inform each other because of medicine, I suppose, my husband also laughs at this. I do read a lot about plagues and epidemics. I just finished um, teaching a course on liter the literature that has emerged from plagues and epidemics, going all the way back to Exodus and dropping in on the plagues and epidemics all the way through to the current one. And that's been really wonderful. And, the, and I have nonfiction writers. I so respect um, Wendell Berry's essays being among them, that he's also a fiction writer. Or David Quammen, who's a wonderful, he himself is not a biologist, but he's a science writer and he writes well. I think we need science writers who are imaginative and lively and good at popularizing without dumbing down. Uh, William Bryant Logan is another one. He wrote a wonderful book called Dirt uh, about the life of the soil, which is such a good read. So I do that and... Uh, you know, I accept friends' recommendations. And there are certain seasons of the year like this one where a lot of my reading is students' papers. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. But I love yeah. coaching people on writing. So when people love something and say, oh, put this on your book list, I do. And when I get to them, I read a pretty wide variety of stuff. It's apparent from your writing that Barry and Austin and Annie Dillard appears, I think a time or two, kind of fit make up some, at least a, a portion of the influence when you're thinking about writing. Does that fit with, have you read all of Barry? Are you, do you kind of fan out about those writers or is it, do they fit the same category where you read the ones you're interested in and, and not the ones you're not? Yeah, I think I've read most of Barry and, and I have the great gift of being married to a reader also. And we spent a lot of, have spent a lot of time in our marriage reading out loud to each other, which I think is a wonderful way to, stay in conversation. He loves Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and we've read Middlemarch together. And so some of the classic stuff, I've always loved Moby Dick and the Scarlet Letter. And I love Faulkner. We read all of Absalom, Absalom aloud, actually on a trip with two other friends who were open to that too. So I think reaching back for old and beloved things that have really shaped so much of the culture we live in is valuable. But I also rely on friends to point me to things that of value in contemporary literature because I don't have time to read all the book reviews. But just today I was looking at the New York Review of Books, you know, and they have these big pages with new books and they're all so appetizing. So I kind of rely on the spirit to move me toward what I need to be taking in at any given moment. Thanks for listening to Writers and Writings. For more, you can sign up for our newsletter at writersandwritings.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon for more episodes. 
I'm Aaron Klein Hanbury. Thank you.